Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at uh, the story of Jacob, the narrative of Jacob. Jacob, he's got many doubts, many failures, more fears and failures uh, than any other character or, uh, or person in the book of Genesis. And yet, because of that, that's the reason why he's the most relatable character, I think, uh, in the story of Genesis, in the book of Genesis. And in this passage, we've now arrived at the climax of Jacob's life, the turning point in Jacob's life. After this passage, Jacob's completely changed. Before this, Jacob was uh, religious. He was a superstitious man. After this episode, uh, Jacob is a changed man. Before this, uh, Jacob was avoiding God. He doesn't even pray to God. He doesn't even seek God. But after this, Jacob draws nears to God. And uh, in this passage, it centers around this wrestling. Jacob is wrestling this man all night. He goes toe-to-toe with God. Remember, remember that, passage, that, that portion in a, or episode in, a, in Forrest Gump? Um, Lieutenant Dan goes to Forrest Gump and he says, Where the hell is your God? Where the hell is your God? And Forrest Gump responds, It's funny that he said this because at that moment, God showed up. The real question is, how do you stand in the presence of a holy God? Or, you know, if we're looking for spiritual reality, and everybody, we live in a time where everybody's looking for spiritual truth, spiritual reality, what do you do once you encounter it? What do you do once you find God? And whenever the Bible refers to God in the Old Testament, this is the reason why. It's a problem. The Bible says that it's perilous to draw near to God. God is a fire. God is a violent wind. God is a storm. And that means that God is uncontrollable. He is consuming. So when you draw near to God, you're riding a hurricane. You're riding a storm. You're riding the lightning. Today, we're going to learn three points, three things about what it means to encounter God, what it means to find or encounter God. Jacob's preparation, the significance of the encounter, and the resolution of the encounter. Jacob's preparation for the encounter with God, Jacob's, the significance of Jacob's wrestling with God, and lastly, the resolution, which becomes our resolution in terms of accounting, encountering God. First, the preparation. The preparation for the encounter. We've got to go into a little bit of background here. Uh, God called Abraham. 
that's Jacob's grandfather. God called Abraham uh, the father of Isaac. He says, the world is broken. It's falling into decay. The world is coming apart. It's decaying into violence and evil. But one of your descendants, this is my promise, one of your descendants will be the child of promise. I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to undo everything that's wrong with the world through your child, through your son, through your descendants. And in every generation of your descendants, one child will become the leader of the family, the leader of the clan, and that leader of the family or clan will become the the child savior, will become the messianic sea, will become the redeemer of that generation. I will bless that child. And through him, another child's going to be born. And that child is going to become the savior of his generation and his clan, his family. He's going to become the carrier of that seed. We're going to continue on for generations and generations until the ultimate child, the ultimate seed, the ultimate savior, the ultimate Messiah will be born. And through Abraham, just as God promised, Isaac is born. And through Isaac's descendants then, the world's going to be blessed. The world's going to be redeemed. But then in Isaac, there's a conundrum. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, gives birth to two sons, twins, which one of them are going to be blessed? And Rebecca's confused because they're jostling. Literally, the twins are jostling about in her womb. And so she inquires of the Lord. She seeks a prophet. And the prophet comes back and says, the prophecy comes back and says that the elder will serve the younger. It's completely countercultural. It's usually the younger serves the elder, but the elder will serve the younger. And, and so Jacob's going to be the one. The younger is going to be the one that's blessed. Rebecca gets it. Rebecca knows but Isaac refuses. Isaac resists. And as they grew up, Isaac constantly dotes on and he favors Esau. And as a result, it creates tremendous poison, brings poison into the family. Jacob is bitter for Isaac's love, for Isaac's attention. Jacob is desperate for Isaac's affirmation. And, but, and as Isaac, Isaac ages, his eyes are failing him. He's nearing death. He prepares to give the blessing to Esau. He resists God. So what what does Jacob do? Jacob knows that the blessing is his destiny. And so he resents his father for it. And what does he do? He disguises himself as Esau. And uh, he steals the blessing that was meant for Esau. He steals it. And Isaac, realizing what happens, finally surrenders to God's plan, God's will. He surrenders. But Esau, he's not so submissive. What does he do? He's filled with anger. He's filled with fury. And he threatens to kill his brother, Isaac. And as a result, since then, Jacob, he's away from his land. He's away from his people. He's away from his friends. He's got uh, no family. He's, uh, He's penniless. He's friendless. He's without family, without land. In some ways, possibly wondering, did God really mess up? Maybe God made, maybe I misinterpreted. Did God mess up? Did I screw up too far? Am I, have I gone too far? He's poor. He's running away. And there's so much distance. He doesn't even seek God. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't really even acknowledge God until later on in, in this whole narrative. It's like Lieutenant Dan, where the hell is your God? Over time, some time passes by, Jacob starts to build some wealth. He starts to get wealthier. He's got two wives. He's got 11 sons. He's got flocks. But he's tired. He's tired, but he's restless. And he knows now it's time to go home. It's time to start making his way home. 
He's got to meet Esau. Esau is the one thing keeping Jacob away from the promise. Esau is the one thing keeping Jacob away from his land, from his people. And so he knows he needs to face Esau. He's got, and he figures out, he's constantly thinking. Jacob is constantly scheming. And he figures, what I have to do is I have to pacify him. And when we finally arrive to chapter 32, he divides his family into two camps. And he basically sends word. And he hears that Esau is making his way with a team of 400 people. He's making his way to meet Jacob. And we see in, in verse 7. Jacob is in fear. He's in great fear. And he says, you know, if Esau comes, he may attack me. So he divides his uh, team into two camps. And he figures, um, you know, if, uh, if Esau comes and attacks, at least one camp will be able to escape. And what he does is he gathers this enormous gift, an enormous endowment, and he starts to send them in waves. First wave, second wave, third wave. And each of the waves comes with the same message that it's coming from Jacob who wants to honor his brother Esau. And so these waves go, these waves of flattery, trying to appease Esau. He sends everyone ahead with his possessions. And we get to verses 22 to 23. His family, his people, they're all sent ahead across the river Jabbok. And Jacob's alone. And he figures on one hand, if he gets attacked, everyone else can escape. Everyone else can get away. He's literally putting himself at Esau's mercy. But on the other hand, he knows that if he can just face Esau, if he can just pacify Esau, appease Esau, he can finally end this lifelong struggling that's begun since the womb. He can finally end the wrestling. What is wrestling? What is wrestling? Wrestling is attacking and scheming right? Wrestling is constantly attacking and escaping. Wrestling is to be under someone and then over someone, right? That's what wrestling is. That's what Jacob does. He's preparing. He's preparing for his encounter. Second point is the significance of this encounter. By the time we get to this passage, Jacob is in the dark, and it's the night before the, his ultimate confrontation with his brother Esau, He's in the dark and he's alone. Everyone's gone. Everything's gone. Verse 24, he's absolutely alone. He's literally reliving the days when he was penniless, when he was wifeless, when he was landless, when he had no money, nobody around him. And at the same time, he's become humble. Over the course of the last several chapters, we've seen Jacob's life, you know, really just broken. You know, every attempt that he's made for some form of success has ended in brokenness in some way. And, and uh, you know, now he's alone. He's sent everyone across. And um, the Jabbok River is this picture of serenity. A lot of people, a lot of commentators liken it to what it must have been like in the Garden of Eden. It's this beautiful, serene place. And in Jacob, there's this war going on, right? But he's taking the time to think. He wants to be alone. This actually began earlier in chapter 32. He wants to be alone. He wants to take the time to reflect. And what is he doing? For the first time in chapter 32, he prays. He actually seeks God for the first time. He's being humbled. And he's already started praying. And now he's utterly alone. He wants to pray until he realizes all of a sudden that he's not alone. A man is there in the dark. Verse 24, a man comes. 
And Jacob begins to wrestle with this man. And this wrestling match goes all night. He realizes he's met his match. He's completely caught off guard. It's the last thing that he expected. He was supposed to be alone. And this man wrestles in point for point. For every move, there's a counter move. They're evenly matched. They go all night. What does it mean to meet God? What does it mean to encounter God? What does it mean to experience spiritual reality? I mean, you can have community, and you think that, you know, we've been talking about how encountering God requires you to plug into community. It requires you to be in worship. So if you, if you found good community, you found good worship, you've plugged into a community group, and yet you could be totally lost. You can be lost, completely lost, if God is not personal to you. Jacob had to be alone with God. It was set up. That was the encounter. The reality of God, if the reality of God, who he is, if his message, his intent is not deeply personal to you, then community, all these things, worship, services, plugging into a community group, it's nothing. Until the reality of God is deeply personal to you, you're just using community to feed your loneliness. You're just using community, you know, to get, uh, to fulfill your own personal needs. And one of the ways that, one of the indicators is that you're not, you're only choosing certain conditions for yourself to be in. I'm only going to love certain people. Not everybody, certain people. When I plug into this group, I'm only going to favor this group of people. Not everybody else. That's how you know that you're actually using the community. You're not, the God, God is still becoming personal to you. We need the personal hand, the personal touch of God. You need to know God deeply. And that starts with you being personal, with you being alone. Community is absolutely necessary, but it's not affected the way God intended unless the reality of God is deeply personal to you. And if you're starting to sense that in your aloneness right now, then you know that God is becoming personal as well. Why is that so important? Why is it so important? It's because your true crises, think about this, your true suffering, all the things that you experience, the deepest crises in your life, you're going to brave them alone. You're going to suffer them alone. No matter who you have around you, your truest crises, you will always endure alone. You're going to face them alone. For Jacob, what's going on? Tomorrow he's saying, I'm expecting to wrestle with the man who has ruined my life. And here I am, I'm spending time the entire night wrestling with this man. And it gets even worse. Verse 25, the man maims him. You know, he touches him in a way where he he is just completely paralyzed. He's maimed. And what does that tell you? That your encounter with God, it's wrestling. It always begins with wrestling. What is wrestling? Wrestling requires focus. This man, you know, wrestled with Jacob all night. And there's a constant attack and reversal. It's different than a dance. In a dance, you have a leader and a follower. You have one who who is leading and one who is constantly surrendering. And because of that, there's movement together. You're working in tandem. That's different than a wrestling match. In a wrestling match, there's attack and there's reverse. There's attack, there's counterattack. It's, it's the complete opposite of a dance. And as a result, wrestling requires focus. Wrestling requires countering. And because of the countering and because of the mental and the, and the physical sometimes and the wrangling that takes place, wrestling is suffering. It's going to weaken you. It's going to beat you up. If you feel beat up, if you feel tired and weary in every way, you're wrestling. You're wrestling with God. 
What does that mean? Um, it takes utter focus. Nothing else matters. You know, when you're focusing on something, you're saying, I know all this other stuff is going on right now, but this is what I need to pay attention to. That's what's going on. It's not like Jacob knew who it was that he was wrestling at first. He didn't know that at first. You know, but after hours and hours and hours go by, what happens? There's this deep focus. There's this deep focus. That means that your thoughts, your actions, everything starts to matter, right? How many times have you heard you or your friends say at some point after some intense struggle, maybe I need to start going to church. Maybe I need to start going back to the Bible. You ever say that? You know, it's not natural to do that. That's not something that, you know, it's not an intelligent thing to do, for say. It's not just because you're intelligent that you're coming to these conclusions. But if you're suffering and you're struggling and all of a sudden you come to the conclusion, maybe I need to start thinking into what God says. That's wisdom. It's because there's focus, incredible focus. Now, it's also countering. Um, you know you're encountering God when you start to argue with him, when you start to fight with him. You start to counter everything that you know about God and it, and it disagrees with you and it doesn't sit well with you. You say, well, I, I feel like rejecting that. When you start feeling with that, what's happening? God, stop being something out there. He's coming to your face. You're wrestling with him. He starts to disagree with you. He starts to argue with you. You know, it's, it's very, uh, is it really sensible uh, to question God on everything? We tend to have lots of questions. People question God. People question the Bible all the time. Is it really sensible to question God on everything and yet at, this, at the same time reject God when he says, when he starts to question you? What's happening? There's a wrestling. There's attack and counterattack. There's a reversal. We tend to ask God all sorts of questions, but then we get upset when he starts to question our lifestyles and, and, and our pride, our selfishness, our promiscuity. You see all that? God is countering. And it's actually sensible to do that. You know why? Because that's the beginning of a relationship. So you shouldn't be discouraged. If you feel like you, you have issues with God, you're starting to develop. Now you're starting to develop a relationship with God. Do you see that? You know, couples will be able to tell you this. Any married couple will tell you that the first couple years of marriage is much like attack and counterattack. It's like, uh, you know, attack and reversal. Because what's, what's happening? The first couple years, you're constantly learning. You're struggling. <laughs> you're struggling to learn what it means when one person is now moving in with you. And when it happens, it's not natural. All your selfishness starts to show up. It starts to address all of your character qualities and you, you, it's really a great thing. Why? Because you're learning the deepest things about who you really are. Things that you didn't want to face. Things that you didn't want to believe about yourself. That's the wrestling. That's the countering. Um, finally, wrestling is suffering. Why did this man gradually wear Jacob down? I mean, he wrestled him all night. Jacob, for a period of time, was slowly being humbled. And he was being broken. And by this point, Jacob needed to be brought to utter weakness in order to wake him up. Suffering brings us to weakness. It wears you down. It beats you up. And as you get beat up and as you get worn down, as you're tired, you're tired emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and physically even, and in all these ways, what happens? In your, if you're being humbled and if you're being woken up and you're tired physically and you're beaten up spiritually and emotionally, that's when you start to reach out for help. That's when you start to need God. And in verse 25, we see the wake-up call. I'm going to read verse 25 here. It says, When the man saw 
that he could not overpower him. That's Jacob. He couldn't overpower Jacob. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. That's the wake-up call. The man dislocates Jacob's hip. Okay, in the NIV it says that it's his hip. If you read other translations, um, the literal word in Hebrew for hip is actually thigh. The man touched Jacob's thigh, literally dislocated his hip, his thigh. And Jacob is reeling now. He's been wrestling up until this point. He's been wrestling this man point for point all night. And all of a sudden, his hip, his thigh is dislocated. And so far, up until this point, the indications were that it was an even match. In fact, there are clues that Jacob was winning the match. The man realized he could not overpower Jacob. He couldn't overcome Jacob. And then all of a sudden, just a touch, just a touch, and Jacob's thigh, his hip, dislocated. His leg is paralyzed. Jacob realized this man has incredible power. This man has incredible force, incredible strength. And all night, really, he's been playing with me. He's been restraining all night. Because if he showed me his full force, I would have been wiped out. Can you imagine the horror? The horror was just beginning to dawn on Jacob. The man says, let me go. You know, how does it dawn on him? The man says, let me go, for it is daybreak. Verse 26, it's the ultimate clue. At night, no matter how close you are, I mean, it's not like they had electricity back then. At night, pitch black, these two men are wrestling. They're jostling about all night. But even at night, in the darkest of night, if you are together wrestling, even if you're face to face, you can't see the other person. But the man says, it's daybreak, let me go. It's dawning on Jacob who this man is. This man is protecting me. He's protecting me from seeing his face. And at this moment, Jacob realized who that man really was and who he really is. And that's very important. He realized at this point the real struggle the real wrestling match, the real problem that's going on in his life. The man says, let me go. Before, Jacob was trying to wrestle God. Jacob was trying to negotiate with God. Jacob is trying to control God. Jacob's trying to escape God. He's trying to control his circumstances, manipulate other people, hurt other people, lie, cheat, steal, build his resume. Why? Because all along, he believed that Esau was the problem of his life. Esau. Esau was the one that he always had to outdo. He wanted the blessing, so he had to outdo Esau to steal the blessing. He was, you know, he was deceiving Isaac. And in deceiving Isaac, he's really deceiving Esau. In deceiving Laban, his uncle, he's really deceiving Esau. In deceive, but, you know, when he was deceived into marrying Leah, he started to wake up. Because he realized he's been had. His conscience is waking up. What did it remind him of? It reminded him of him Jacobing other people, him deceiving other people. That's his name. All my life, I'm looking to, ble- to get the blessing from Esau. I'm looking to get the blessing from Isaac. I'm looking to to earn my blessing by marrying someone as beautiful as Rachel. And I realized, you know, I'm doing this always, you know, Esau is always the person that stood between me and success, between me and the blessing. All my life, that's what I really wanted. You know, but what I'm realizing now is I need it from you. I need you. I'm in utter weakness. I'm broken. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm suffering. The problem was not Esau. What he realized now at this point, the problem was him. His name, 
means deceiver. The problem was him. His anger towards God, his resentment towards his family, his vindictiveness, his addiction to his rights and his wealth and escaping. He's constantly working. He, I, I have rights to a good life. You know, God promised he owes it to me. A lot of us, we live religious lives. We go to church, we pray, we read the Bible, we do our quiet time. We do this religiously. You know why we do that? It's not so much because of we have a, such a good relationship. God does not argue with you. We're doing it because God will owe you. If I do these things, then God owes me a better life. And that's why, you know how you know that? When things go bad in your life, you say, where was God? Like Lieutenant Dan. Where the hell is God? That's what we say. We suffer, and in our suffering, we question God's presence in our lives. You know, but a God, I'm going to submit to you, a God that doesn't argue with you, a God that doesn't wrestle with you, a God that doesn't fight with you, a God that doesn't counter you or argue with you or reason with you, that kind of God does not exist, and he will never be God in your life. He will never change you. He will never shape you he never, because he will, never, he will never challenge you. And that's why here Jacob realizes in the midst of this reversing and attacking, he realizes who this man is. This is the man that I need to to get the blessing from all my life. All my life I thought that I needed the blessing from from Isaac. I needed the blessing from Esau. Esau was the person that's going to ruin my life. He's the one that stood between me and the blessing. But in actuality, it's not Esau. The deeper problem was in self. It was this man that stood in the way. I need God. I needed to know God. I need, to, I need God's blessing. And, and it's an amazing thing because verse 27, the man asks Jacob's name. He, you know, Jacob is reeling. He's in excruciating pain. He's clutching onto this man because he's hobbled and, he, and, he's, and he's paralyzed. He's clutching onto God and he says, I need your blessing. And the man says, tell me your name. What is your name? It's an amazing thing that's going on here because Jacob responds, Jacob. It's a remarkable turning point. This moment marks the turning point of Jacob's life. Why is that? Jacob is the seed of the promise. We saw that in the prophecy. He knows that the destiny is his. He stole the blessing, but now the seed of the promise, you know, the descendants as it passes, by, passes along, the seed of this promise is looking directly into the promise himself. This is the ultimate promise. He's looking into the promise. And he says, I need your blessing. And the man says, what is your name? The first time Jacob was ever asked, what is your name? Isaac asked him. And Jacob lied to him. Jacob lied and stole the blessing. He said, my name is Esau. But this time he's clutching at the leg of true promise, true blessing. And the man asks, what is your name? And Jacob responds, I am Jacob. He's becoming true. His name is deception. It's in his name to deceive, but for the first time, the turning point, he tells the truth. That's an amazing thing. It's very important. Why? Because his name, the word Jacob, conjures up an original prophecy. The whole reason why we have the seed of the promise is because in Genesis chapter 3, The actual promise was this. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the head of the deceiver. The seed of the woman, one day, Adam, your child, a seed of Eve, will crush the deceiver once and for all. Here's Jacob now. He's reeling in pain. His hip has been wrenched. He's powerless. There's no way he can counter anything that this man does now in his life. 
He's in excruciating pain. He's clutching at the leg of true power because he knows he can't run away. His leg is wrenched. He's clutching at the leg of true power and he tells the truth. He says, I am that deceiver. I've been wrestling with you. I've been countering you all my life. You know, I, I deserve to die. I, I'm not just a liar. That prophecy, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the deceiver. I am. I realize I'm looking at the face of true goodness because I am evil. I am the deceiver. No more resume building. No more trying to lie about, you know, who he is, you know, before he tried to dress like Esau, to feel more like Esau. Every one of us, we try to pile things on our resumes to look like someone else. And here's Jacob. He says, you know what? This, let's end the charade because I, I can't run from you anymore. I am a liar. I am the liar. And you know what? I will not let you go unless you bless me. I need you in my life. All along, I thought the blessing was wealth, and I have wealth. And, uh, and it left me homesick. My family is against me, and I'm alone. All along, I thought that if I could just have Rachel, someone beautiful in my life that I've earned, then I'm going to feel beautiful on the inside, and I've realized it's cost me 14 years of labor, and I'm old now. You know, I'm getting older, I'm wrinkly, my hands are weathered, and I've hurt people in my life to the depths all my life, I've been trying to earn blessing. I stole the blessing. I've alienated my family. And you are the true blessing all along. I need you. I need your name. I need you in my life. I need your record. Jacob is saying, you know, I need you in my life. For the first time in his life, for real, he's staring at the blessing. And he's praying deeply. And he's confessing who he is deeply. And he says, you know, you have to be the person that's at the center of my life. I thought it was wealth. I thought it was love. And it's not working. It's destroyed me. It's made me miserable. I need you in my life. I would rather die seeing you than be blind to you and have all these other things in my life. You know what God is saying? God is saying, I will only come into your life when you see that the lack of me in your life is the source of all your problems. And having me, the provision of me in your life, is the only solution. I will only come into your life when you see that the lack of me in your life is the source of all your problems. Yet having me in your life is the only solution. You know, it's not having a spouse. It's not having children or perfect children. It's not having that house, that one house that you can invest in. It's not having that job. It's not having that promotion. It's the provision of me in your life that will be the source, the solution to all the things that are wrong in your life. Now, who won the match? Who won the match? Because God says Jacob overcame. He gives him a new name. He says, your name will be Israel. You have struggled with God and you've overcome. In other words, he's saying, you know, you've won. God says Jacob won. Jacob won. How did he win? He's broken, he's beat up, he's weak, he's, he's wrestled all night, and you know, he's, he's, he was supposed to prepare to meet what he thought was the, his destiny until he met destiny in the face. He's broken, he's reeling, he's in pain. How could he have won? Jacob won by giving up. Jacob won by surrendering. God said, let me go. He couldn't overpower him. You know, it looks like Jacob won, but Jacob's beaten up. God kept his power down. God kept his power down 
so that Jacob would not be destroyed. Jacob was spared. Jacob calls this place Peniel. Why? Because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. God let me win. That means I have hope. That means that his promise is real. I've experienced it. It's touched me. It's moved me. You know, Jacob was trying to win by overpowering God until he realized he couldn't overpower God. He couldn't overcome God. And at once he realized who he was wrestling, he realized he was riding the storm. He was riding the hurricane. He was actually riding the lightning, the fire. And he let out his weakness and he surrendered. And God calls him winner. Verse 28, a remarkable thing. He gets a new name. God says, you know, your name used to be loser. Your name used to be liar. You were a cheater. You were a thief, a fraud. Your name literally is deceiver. So now I declare you winner. You're the one who overcomes. It's an amazing thing. Even Jacob's amazed by this. Jacob says, you know, who are you? What is your name? And God says, you know, why do you ask me my name? Let me go. You can't see my face. And thus he names it Peniel. I saw God face to face, and yet I was spared. I've overcome. And you see the sun, finally, after all, chapter after chapter, you know, there's darkness in his life. You know, he meets Leah. He, has, he sleeps with Leah because it's dark. You know, he's, he's out there. He's got nothing, nowhere to rest his head. And so what happens? It says darkness. The sun had set on him. It's as, it's as if the sun had set on his entire life. The sun set on his entire life. And even now, this man is wrestling him in pitch darkness. But God declares him winner. God renews his promise. And he makes sure Jacob will never forget because he's limping and forever his leg is changed. He will never walk the same ever again. He will never, he will never forget this encounter. And the sun, for the first time in Jacob's life that we read, rises above him. The blessing. The blessing has been fulfilled. It's an amazing thing. And, and you know, we see that that's representative of the, the promise, the blessing Jacob's life is finally resolving now. That's Jacob's life. That's the significance of the wrestling match. It was the resolution to his life because he finally encountered God. He rode the lightning, he rode the hurricane, and he rode it because God let him. God actually became unpowered so that Jacob could have power. What is our resolution? What about our wrestling with God? Some very quick lessons. One, first of all, everybody here is wrestling with God. We think we have an, everyone here has an Esau in our lives. We think we're wrestling with this Esau, but the thing is we're truly, you know, what is the Esau? Some examples. It could be our family. We have an emotional troubled, uh, emotionally troubled relationship. We may have an impressive uh, uh, employer. Maybe the church. Maybe for some of us, the church has been our Esau all our lives. And those circumstances are real. I don't want to diminish the hurt that any one of us has experienced by any one of those things that are Esau's in our lives. But the thing is, the real problem is we don't trust what God is doing, that God is active. We are all here because God is active in our lives. We should be, that, should, that truth, the fact that you're here, it should astound, it should amaze you that God is active in our lives. Our real wrestling is with God. Who or what is your Esau? What is your Esau? Second point, what is your limp? For Jacob, he will never forget the day. You know, he will never forget his encounter with God. It changed him. It wasn't just some sort of intellectual ascension that he arrived at. 
It shaped him. It changed him. From that point on, his walk will never be the same. Every one of us bears wounds, and those wounds are painful. What are your wounds? Because those wounds have brought you here to this encounter. It's an amazing thing. If you leave wounds untreated, what happens? The infection sets in, and it's going to actually kill you. Those wounds will beat you up until you die. They'll consume you. But the irony is that if you take those wounds to a skillful surgeon, you will go under the knife, and what looks like something that will destroy you and kill you and stab you and cut you away will actually heal you. Our God is such a a gracious and accurate surgeon. He is more accurate than any other surgeon we'll ever encounter. He is so gracious and so skilled, so compassionate yet so, and so loving and yet so brilliant. And so he studied you all his life. And he knows you. And he wants to heal you. Do you believe that? What is your limp? You will walk away changed. What is your limp? Thirdly, um, Jacob realizes who he is and he says, I'm just going to hold on. That's prayer. He said, I'm just going to hold on. That's what prayer is. You know, prayer is realizing that the only thing you need is God to be personal in your life. You know, and and it's a, this is an amazing thing. The next day, he's broken, he's limping. He looks like a mess. But he's meeting Esau, and you don't see, you know, in chapter 32, verse 7, he's greatly afraid. He says, I'm in great fear because I'm meeting Esau. Chapter 33, you don't see fear. Why? I mean, he's broken, he's beaten up, he's weak, he's lost everything. You know, he can't even walk right anymore and he's going to encounter the man with an army of 400 people and yet there's no fear. Why? Because he's met God. If you've met God, if you rode a hurricane, you know, if you walk through the all-consuming fire, what else is there to be afraid of? He's got tremendous humility. He's broken. And yet, he's got courage. If I can face and encounter God, I can encounter anything. Prayer is the ultimate courage because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm letting go of everything that I believe about myself that's good. And I'm just going to trust in God. It's the ultimate courage. It's the beginning of real courage, genuine courage. Now, fourthly, and here's the last point, Jacob deserved to die. He knew, he knew that. Jacob deserved to die, but God only touched him. It changed the way he would walk forever, but he only touched him. God didn't destroy him. God didn't kill him. And we're confused by this. You know, why didn't the, why didn't the text just say to us, you know, and why did he have to say, you know, when God saw that he couldn't overcome him, you know, he touched his hip. Why did he just, why did he go through this whole thing? And, and why, did, why didn't the text just explain to us, well, God was, you know, lowering himself to uplift Jacob. He doesn't say that. Think, if God came in full power, if God just came in all of his glory, in all of his wrath, you know, Jacob, his seed, his descendants, God's promise made since Abraham, since the time of Eve and Adam would have all been demolished, would have been destroyed. There would be no redemption. There would be no uh, reconciliation with God. But God is so gracious. He touches only Jacob's thigh. The thigh in Hebrew, you know, the hip, was always representative of power. To be touched in the thigh meant that God God took away everything that Jacob believed was his power. Everything that he believed made him strong. 
Every one of us has something that represents power for us. But it's a double entendre. The reason why the thigh represented power is because in those days, power was represented in the number of children you had, particularly sons, your seed, your descendants. So by God taking, uh, touching Jacob's hip, by touching his thigh, it meant that on one hand, I am taking away everything that you thought was power for you to render you utterly weak. But I'm only going to touch your thigh. Why? Because one day, my full wrath will rest on one of your descendants. That's what God is saying here. One day, my whole wrath, you're only going to get a touch because the whole wrath will be transferred to your descendants. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 5, it's written in your call to worship, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Centuries later, Jesus, the ultimate promise, true power on the cross would be smitten by God. He would be afflicted by God. He would be punished by God. He would be wounded by God. On the cross, he would receive the death blow that Jacob deserved. Jesus received the death blow that Jacob deserved. You know, Jesus chose to come in weakness. He didn't come in full glory. He didn't come in full strength. He came in weakness. And as a result, Jesus is the the greater Jacob. Jacob tried to come in strength, tried to always overpower, but Jesus, he comes in weakness. And he's utterly weak on the cross. You know, Jacob's a liar, he's a cheater, he's a fraud, but the sun rose above him on the cross. What do you see? What do you see on the cross? Not a sun. Not the sun. You see a storm. When Jesus was on the cross, a storm came. There was an earthquake. The clouds rolled. There was complete darkness. The earth shook. In other words, what's happening on the cross? On the cross, Jesus was riding the storm. He's literally riding the storm. He's literally riding the hurricane. He's up there alone. And he's wrestling with God in darkness on the cross. And you know what he's saying on the cross? You know, he's groaning in pain and he's contorted and he's twisting in pain. What is he doing? He's saying, I am wrestling with God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jacob's hip. Jacob's hip was wrenched by a touch. Can you imagine what the full force of God's wrath would feel like? That's Jesus on the cross. Jesus suffering the full extent, the fullest extent, not a drop left. You know, there's a hymn, one of my favorite hymns, it says that Jesus sucked on the dregs of God's wrath. You know what the dregs are? I'm not a tea drinker, some of you are. Dregs are what's at the bottom of the tea, those leaves that are left over at the bottom of the tea. What, he, what, what the hymn was saying was that Jesus was literally, after sipping the cup of God's wrath, what's left over are these tea leaves, he was literally sucking on what's left so that not an ounce of God's wrath was left behind. He took it all. He rode not only the physical hurricane, he rode the cosmic hurricane of God's wrath. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm wrestling with the full extent of God's strength, God's justice, God's wrath, and I cannot overcome. Jacob, he's called Israel, he will overcome. He says, I have not overcome. It is finished into your hands. I commit my spirit. I am overwhelmed. I've drowned in the storm. That's what he's saying. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author writes, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame. Jacob was saved through the weakness of God. We are saved through the weakness of Christ. You can put away all the things that you think make you strong. We are saved by the weakness of Christ. That's good news. You don't have to work to earn God's favor. It's good news. That's the gospel. Will you let that move you? Not just today. You have to take that truth and you have to repeat that over and over and over in the times of suffering because that's what's going to wake you up. That's what's going to make you draw near to God. Will you do that when in the thickest of your troubles this week? I know for some of you it's exam week and some of you you're just struggling. Some of you are just working and working and you're tireless and then you come home and there's children and you're working and you're working and you're tireless. You've got to put away the things that make you strong. And humble, what it means to be humble is to be broken and say, I am broken, but let, in your brokenness, let the Lord come and touch you with the good news of the gospel, that the true seed of the promise bore the full extent of God's wrath, so that when, it says, for the joy set before him. That meant that here's Jesus, suffering, groaning, contorted, twisted, and yet he was joyful. And he worshiped God still on the cross. He was calling God, my God. He was worshiping God on the cross. Glad to do it because of his love and his grace and his compassion for you. Will you let that truth move you? Will you let that shape you? Let that be the thing that drives your limp. You will be changed. You will find joy. You will find peace. Jacob, his life changed for the rest of his life. So will yours. Let's pray.